Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Much of the Supreme Court's work involves narrow questions. In the late 19th century, the owner of a produce company argued that tomatoes should be classified as a fruit, the better to avoid attacks on imported vegetables. In 1893, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that tomatoes were indeed vegetables. But every now and again, the Supreme Court hears cases with the potential to reshape American life. The same court that ruled on tomatoes would, three years later, rule that racial segregation was constitutional. That decision, Plessy v. Ferguson, remains one of the most notorious in the court's history, even though it was overturned almost 60 years later in Brown v. Board of Education. This year, the Supreme Court will dive headfirst into some of the most controversial debates in recent decades, including abortion rights, guns, and religious freedom. How might these decisions shift the country, and how will they affect confidence in the court itself? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Fassman, The Economist, U.S. Digital Editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how is the Supreme Court reshaping America? This week, the court heard arguments in a case that could remove the constitutional right to an abortion. The left worries this is the biggest step yet in a conservative takeover of the nation's laws. But the justices deny that they are politicians in robes. Does the court have more power than Congress to change America? Not joining us this week to discuss all of this, as you're hearing right now, is John Prito who is sadly down with the flu. We're hoping he'll be back next week. We have with us Steve Maisie, our Supreme Court correspondent, and Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief. Steve, it's good to see you. How are you? I'm well. It's been a busy week, um, but there has been um, the lights of Hanukkah, so that's been nice. I saw on Twitter, John, that you prefer your latkes with no toppings on them, which is a controversial take. It is, but I'll stick by it. Any latke worth eating is worth eating unadorned. Charlotte, how are you? I'm well. I was completely captivated by the Supreme Court arguments this week. We were texting back and forth on Wednesday about them, but um, it was fascinating to hear these justices wrestle with the questions. So looking forward to talking about it. So, Steve, this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, which is a case concerning Mississippi's law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. And we'll discuss that shortly. But we thought we'd start by looking at another case from this term that hasn't had as much focus. Steve, you've been thinking about Ramirez v. Collier for us. Why is that interesting? Well, like most Supreme Court cases, Ramirez v. Collier 
asks a pretty narrow question, but it has broad implications for how the law will affect people's lives in the years to come. And this is an intriguing case because it presents the court with not one, but two really divisive hot-button issues that come together at right angles. It's about the death penalty, and it's about the right to religious free exercise. The John Henry Ramirez case has made its way all the way up to the highest court in the land. As you may know by now, Ramirez was convicted of killing a Corpus Christi convenience store worker during a robbery in 2004. John Ramirez is a death row inmate in Texas. He's not, at this point, contesting his death sentence. He's found religion while in prison and has been receiving spiritual guidance through a plexiglass barrier since 2016 from a Baptist pastor. Mr. Ramirez would like his pastor by his side in the execution chamber, laying hands on him and praying aloud as the intravenous drip of pentobarbital ends his life. But the state refuses, citing security concerns and the need to maintain an orderly, safe, and effective process when carrying out an irrevocable and emotionally charged procedure. So, Ramirez has sued Texas. The Supreme Court agreed to hear his plea, and the case was heard by the court on November 9th. We'll hear argument next today in case 215592, Ramirez v. Collier. The justices seem split on whether Ramirez has a good case. His arguments elicited sympathy from the three more liberal justices, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer. For several decades, until 2019, Texas did allow both audible prayer and touching during a total of 572 executions. That seems to cut against the state's contention that it's somehow now too dangerous to offer the very same end-of-life ministrations to Mr. Ramirez. In how many of those did the audibility and the uh, uh, physical touching create uh, the execution going astray? Are you aware of any? No, Your Honor, though I would point out... So we have experience, and there's never been a problem. Amy Coney Barrett, the newest member of the court, and a conservative, seemed to be on Ramirez's side, too. But for conservative justices who usually bend over backwards to accommodate religious claims, were uncharacteristically unmoved. The Chief Justice, John Roberts, along with Clarence Thomas, Sam Lolito, and Brett Kavanaugh, seemed to lean toward Texas. Thomas expressed a common concern that Mr. Ramirez may just be trying to delay his execution by making up faux religious excuses. If we think that uh, Mr. Ramirez has changed his uh, requests uh, a number of times and uh, has filed uh, last-minute complaints that uh, as uh, and that is an, and, and if we assume that that's a, some indication of gaming the system, what should we do with that uh, with respect to assessing the sincerity of his beliefs? So adding things up, it looks like a four-four split, leaving one justice who seems destined to decide this case one way or the other, and that's Neil Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch, anything further? Justice Kavanaugh. Unfortunately, Justice Gorsuch kept mum for the entire 97 minutes of the argument. We don't know where he stands. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Charlotte, it may strike some listeners as perverse to discuss the Ramirez case when we had a much bigger case, Dobbs, this week. 
What do you make of the Ramirez case? Well, I think the reason to look at Ramirez and to look at some of the other cases on the docket this year are just that there are so many cases of enormous import for American life that are before the Supreme Court. And we have now six conservative justices, six justices who are appointed by Republican presidents, three appointed by Democrats. And you have a confluence of both the most conservative court in decades and a number of just really, really big cases that the court will consider that have the potential to remake American life. Much as we like to hear the arguments and the questions that are posed by the justices Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan, so much depends on how the conservatives land, the nuances in the questions that they ask, whether John Roberts is able to bring more uh, justices to his side in a majority opinion, how someone like Neil Gorsuch might rule. There's a lot to be explored in the gaps and uh, points of alignment among the conservative justices. And I think Ramirez helps illuminate some of that. Steve, why do you think the Ramirez case matters? One of the reasons that it's good to look at Ramirez during a week when Roe versus Wade and the right to abortion is coming before the court is to think about what the judges are doing, what the justices are doing when they decide cases that are so value-laden. And Ramirez offers two different values, religion on the one hand, the death penalty on the other. And in that oral argument, it really showed that it's often not about the cold, dry legal principles, but it's about what the justices care about, what values matter more to them, and sometimes which people, what types of people they tend to give more deference to uh, than other values and other people. It's a reminder that the Supreme Court is made up of nine individuals, right? Not nine ideologies that sort of rule in a predictable way all the time. Yes, I, I think that's right. So, Charlotte, as we said at the beginning, most listeners' thoughts probably were not with Ramirez this week. They were with Dobbs. And you and I were texting yesterday during oral arguments. What did you make of that case? What do you think is going to happen? It was really fascinating on a few levels. One, of course, is that John Roberts seemed to be trying to stake out a middle ground that the Mississippi law, which would effectively ban all abortions after 15 weeks, that maybe you could uphold that Mississippi law without throwing out Roe v. Wade. That didn't get much traction on either side of the um, of the argument. He didn't seem to be able to bring along conservative justices. The lawyer for the clinic in Mississippi argued that if you allow the law to stand for 15 weeks, there's no reason why other states couldn't outlaw abortion um, much earlier in a woman's pregnancy. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think that the broader question that I found fascinating was that this was not just a case about the legitimacy of the right to abortion. It was a case that both sides cast about the legitimacy of the court itself. Justice Sotomayor was really forceful in arguing that confidence in the court would be severely undermined if the the court overturned 50 years of precedent. She was arguing that Roe is the law of the land. And you had Kavanaugh, in contrast, listing the decisions that the court had revisited, um, that the court had overturned, and the lawyer for the state of Mississippi arguing that part of the reason to uphold the Mississippi law 
is to restore confidence in the court, that the court shouldn't be involved in this question at all. It should be a matter for the states to respond. So I thought it was really interesting that on each side, this is not just a test about abortion. This is about the confidence in the Supreme Court itself, with Democratic appointed judges arguing uh, that upholding the law would undermine faith in the court and the conservatives arguing the opposite. Thank you both. We'll go back to an unexpected ruling by one of Donald Trump's appointees in a moment. While I'm in the host chair this week, I thought I'd impose on all of you for a favor. We have a questionnaire up at economist.com slash US pod survey. And we're asking questions there about what you like and don't like about this podcast. I'd love it if you can write in and just tell us. And I promise we will read all of them. We will use them to make this show better. I'd be very grateful. This link again is economist.com slash US pod survey. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome everybody to this confirmation hearing on the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch. Donald Trump had made appointing conservative judges a central promise in his 2016 presidential campaign. Within his first 100 days, he tapped Neil Gorsuch to join the Supreme Court. I am honored and I am humbled to be here. The pick thrilled the right and vindicated those conservatives who had held their noses and voted for a candidate they didn't like, but who would deliver the judiciary they wanted. Here was a staunch conservative vetted by the right whose appointment alarmed civil rights activists. Sarah Warbelow, from the LGBT group, the Human Rights Campaign, testified at Gorsuch's confirmation hearing. Protected by the Constitution, and that we, as individuals and a community, are entitled to equal treatment under the law. We need a justice who recognizes our basic equality and shared humanity. Judge Gorsuch has never met this bar. In October 2019, the court heard a pair of cases concerning male employees who had been fired because they were gay. In the oral arguments, Justice Gorsuch questioned whether the dismissals came down to sexuality or gender. Wouldn't, wouldn't the employer maybe say it's because this, was, this person was a man who liked other men? And isn't that first part sex? The following June... The judgment was announced. We're coming on the air because of a major civil rights decision out of the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has ruled that LGBT Americans are protected by the anti-discrimination laws of this country at their workplaces. They cannot be fired or otherwise discriminated against at work simply because they are lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender. Joining the liberal wing of the court in the ruling were Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch. He even wrote the majority opinion. Gorsuch's decision was a disappointment to conservatives and a pleasant surprise for liberals. But given Gorsuch's judicial philosophy, it shouldn't have been. He had explained this at his confirmation hearing. My decisions have never reflected a judgment about the people before me, only a judgment about the law and the facts at issue in each particular case. A good judge can promise no more than that, and a good judge should guarantee no less. For a judge who likes every outcome he reaches is probably a pretty bad judge, 
stretching for policy results he prefers rather than those the law compels. Justice Gorsuch is a textualist, meaning that he believes the duty of the judiciary is to interpret the law on the page. As he noted in the opinion, only the written word is the law, and all persons are entitled to its benefit. The law the case hung on was Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which banned workplace discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and nationality. Legislators in the 60s hadn't considered sexuality, but Gorsuch's line of questioning suggested that didn't matter. A woman wouldn't be fired for being attracted to a man, but a man would. In this matter, sexuality and sex were the same thing. Some conservatives say the liberal lawyers that argued for the workplace rights of LGBT people designed their case with Justice Gorsuch in mind, appealing to Gorsuch's textualist leanings to guarantee he'd rule on their side. Supreme Court justices are well-known, high-profile figures whose judicial inclinations are intensely scrutinized. They are often predictable, which means that cases can be designed to get the results their authors want. Charlotte, what do you make of this sort of court hacking, we could call it, of tailoring an argument to the predilections of the judges in front of you? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it inevitable? What does it mean for the court and how we should think of the court? I think it's inevitable, but I think it's become more problematic as the appointment of justices has become increasingly political. And so I would say, look at the Mississippi case, right? So Mississippi passed this law because it knew it would provoke litigation that wanted this case to end up before the Supreme Court. At the time Mississippi passed the law, they couldn't have known, however, that Amy Coney Barrett would be one of the Supreme Court justices. But I'll say that in the brief that Mississippi filed before the Supreme Court compared with what it had presented to lower courts in that it was much more explicit in talking about Roe itself and the way that Roe had damaged the court. And one of the arguments is that since Roe was passed, things have changed. So Mississippi argues that the science around fetal pain has changed, which um, Sotomayor pushed back forcefully against. Um, but they would also argue that uh, women have access to birth control, to adoption, and that things have changed and that you can have a career and a family. And I was really interested in that latter piece in the justices questioning. Amy Coney Barrett talked a lot about um, safe haven laws and the ability to drop off a child at a hospital. And so that being an option for women who didn't want to become parents. Um, she, there was also some questioning around having a career and a family. And I was reminded, John, of that book that you saw at a conservative conference you attended in Florida this fall, the title of which was Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, A Justice and a Mother. And the idea that you can be a professional and a mother as one of the key arguments to undermine the necessity of abortions for some women, I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, I was struck yesterday by Justice Barrett's comments first that because states have safe haven laws, all 50 states have safe haven laws and parental rights can be terminated, then abortion wasn't as pressing because you could always carry your pregnancy through to term and then give up the baby. And also by your comparison of the imposition of bodily autonomy that that would require to the imposition of bodily autonomy of vaccines. That is the comparison of a 15-second tiny little shot to nine months of carrying a child. I thought that was extraordinary. Yeah, she mentioned it in a kind of offhand way, but that was something that really stood out to me as well. 
I was struck by that moment also. In fact, I didn't quite absorb it the first time I heard it. I had to go back and look at the transcript and confirm that that's what she actually said. In addition to, of course, the violation of one's bodily autonomy to be forced to carry a fetus to term that you may not want to, there's the assumption that it's just, you know, no big deal for a woman once she gives birth to go and literally put the baby in a drop box at a hospital or at a fire station. Um, that that emotional toll is something that women should bear very easily. And then they can just go back to their lives, go to college or get a job and not think about the baby again. It was a stunning moment from my point of view. So, Steve, we just heard about Justice Gorsuch's decision and about how a lot of people on the right were upset because they thought that the petitioners brought a case specifically targeted to him. How often does that happen? And where else this term and more broadly would you expect to see it happening? Well, to answer that question, we have to back up a little bit because we've had a six to three court for just a term and a half. We had a five to four conservative court for many years prior to that. And there was always an identifiable middle median justice First, it was uh, Justice Powell during this period, then Justice O'Connor. Actually, they sort of both occupied the middle spot at the same time. And then for many years, it was Justice Kennedy. And so when we talk about court hacking, it used to be a little easier. You knew that on um, most divisive issues, you'll have four justices on one side, four on the other, and then Justice Kennedy is the one you have to convince. So you would see not just lawyers trying to do that, but the justices themselves trying to appeal to Justice Kennedy during oral arguments to try to win him over. Now that there is not a justice in the middle, but a lopsided court of six to three, as a lawyer bringing a case to the court, it's a much more difficult proposition to decide whom to target. Because uh, you usually, usually need to pick up two or three justices as opposed to just one if you're coming from the left. If you're coming from the right, they have the luxury of having six justices. We saw Wednesday during the abortion case that it's perfectly fine for them to lose one of those six justices and still make the case they wanted to make. Um, Charlotte mentioned earlier that Chief Justice Roberts seemed to be the only justice who was interested in triangulating, you know, finding some middle way between either upholding Roe versus Wade or striking down that Mississippi law. And so when he was asking questions, the lawyer from Mississippi was basically writing him off and saying, I'm arguing for abolishing Roe versus Wade. It needs to be a wholesale reversal. And he was perfectly fine knowing that this is not what Chief Justice Roberts really wanted, because he thought, and I think it's, I think he was right in thinking that, that there were five justices on his side to very likely um, overrule Roe versus Wade and the cases that have come after it, including Casey. So you think Roe and Casey's days are numbered. Charlotte, do you agree? I really do, unfortunately. I think that it seems very unlikely that John Roberts will be able to get others to come on his side for the reasons that Steve just outlined. And I think that once the Mississippi law is upheld, there um, is a cascade of further actions that will be taken across states. So I think that it's a really troubling time for those who advocate for abortion rights. 
Um, and I think also it raises, as I've said, big questions about the, the court going forward. I'll point out something that um, is, I think, broadly known, but is worth just reinstating, that when you limit access to abortion, abortion cases don't decline. They just take place in a more unsafe manner um, at risk to the mother. So uh, I don't think it will be a shift actually in the number of abortions that are performed, but um, it will be a fundamental shift in American life. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to hear the conservative take on the Roberts Court. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah Isger is a lawyer and political commentator who worked in Donald Trump's Justice Department. She also co-hosts the Advisory Opinions podcast. The common way to see this court is as a 6-3 conservative liberal split. But Sarah sees it more as a 3-3-3 court. We would have the conservatives four corners justices. And when I say four corners, that's a legal term, meaning the four corners of the brief. Uh, You don't look outside the briefs that the two parties give you to determine how a case should come out. Uh, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch would fall into this three. And then on the other end, you would have the liberal wing, uh, Justice Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. But then, of course, you've got the three in the middle, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And the numbers bear this out. Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, was in the majority 97% of the time last term. What that means is that your likelihood of giving to five without Justice Kavanaugh's pretty slim. Now, Justice Barrett and Justice Roberts, however, are still in the 90s with him. So still very likely to be in the majority. So liberals worry that the court is about to restrict abortion rights and expand gun rights far beyond where they are now or where most Americans want them to be. Are they right to have such concerns? And what does it say about American politics that nine unelected lifetime appointees have such power? Well, it's interesting. You know, the which side is raising alarm bells about the Supreme Court does change over time. Think back to the Warren Court in the 60s and how upset conservatives were that there were suddenly all these new constitutional rights, ones that, again, we take for granted now. Uh, Not a whole lot of people are going to argue from a policy standpoint that they want to go back pre-Miranda, where you get your rights read to you when you are being held by police. The right to counsel for instance. These things that were done by a very, very, not not just liberal court, but a liberal court that didn't really have a check from a conservative wing of the court at all, which I think the liberals would argue now is the reverse. Oh, how times have changed. (laughs) You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander is at least an argument worth raising. On the other hand, I think it is worth taking liberals' arguments at face value, which is that it's actually not great for the country for the court to be the one making large-scale fundamental changes to American life. Now, 
my arguments for this, interestingly, are Roe v. Wade, that the court in 1973 makes this very huge, you know, liberal decision on abortion. The country never accepts it. And it's caused this cultural political rift in the country created by the court in the first place. Because, of course, without Roe v. Wade, just worth reminding people, it's not that abortion becomes illegal in the United States. It's that simply there is no federal law on abortion and that states can make their own rules on abortion. Um, But the court generally does not lead the country. Even going back to Brown v. Board of Education, an opinion we all hold uh, quite dear to our country's history and certainly the Supreme Court's history, Schools didn't desegregate the year after Brown v. Board of Education. They didn't desegregate three years after Brown v. Board of Education. There's a real argument that Brown v. Board didn't do a whole lot to desegregate schools, that the country had to catch up. It was 10 plus years uh, and then busing. And uh, you could argue today our schools aren't all that desegregated. So I use all those examples to say that on the one hand, yes, the court has made huge changes in the sort of cultural, legal, political climate of the country, and that may be bad news for liberals. But on the other hand, the court also has not been able to lead the country in a different path from the one it seemed to be going on. And so it may not have nearly the effect that liberals fear that it will. Let me ask one last question. There are a number of ideas for court reform floating around, especially on the left, whether it's, you know, ending lifetime appointments, expanding the court, making appointment to the court effectively a lottery from among appellate judges. None of them obviously have the votes to pass. But do you think the court needs institutional reform? And if someone gave you a magic reform wand, what would you do? With my reform wand, I actually have what I think is the perfect thing to fix the court. It will fix so many of the political problems of the court, which is that the court is deciding these huge cultural issues for the country instead of them being decided by voters, by our uh, Republican democracy, as it was intended to be decided. Make amending the Constitution easier. Not easy, but easier. Right now, it is so, so hard to amend the Constitution. First of all, it's a two-step process. You've got to have two-thirds of the states propose the amendment in the first place or both houses of Congress. And then you've got to have three-fourths ratify it. It needs to be a little easier so that when a vast majority, 80 plus percent of the country disagree with a Supreme Court opinion or Congress refuses to act in the interest of the country on a important issue of national discussion, that then voters can bypass Congress and simply amend the Constitution. Steve, I want to pass the magic reform wand from Sarah to you. Do you think the court needs reform? And if so, what would your chosen reform be? Well, there would be an element of magic in it, wouldn't there be? Um, There is very little to no prospect that Congress will be able to actually implement any of the reform measures that the bipartisan commission that Biden appointed and which is due to submit its final report this month, whether it's court expansion, which from the initial drafts of the documents that have come out of that commission are not actually agreed to by most commissioners, um, or term limits on the justices, or changing the nature of the cases that the, the Supreme Court can take. 
Um, none of these things are going to get through Congress. There isn't even an appetite among the Democratic leaders of Congress for some of these things. Uh, if I did have a magic wand, I would want to see some kind of term limits for the justices. My impression is that there are not any other high courts um, in the developed world that have justices that serve for life. And it would be better to have a more regular turnover of justices. There are some proposals that would give each president for each term two Supreme Court appointments to sort of regularize things so that Donald Trump doesn't get three in four years while Barack Obama gets two in eight years. Um, and the next president might have zero, might have six, right? It would be better to space things out and to limit the number of years, some say 16, some say 18, the justices serve. It would be better, I think, to have some way that justices were serving for a period of time which would give them independence while not giving them authority over Americans' lives and American law for an indefinite period of time. That has been the reason. Yeah, my impression also is that it's very rare to have lifetime appointments on any other Supreme Court. But Charlotte, you know better than I have. You've been looking at other countries' Supreme Courts. Yeah, I was just looking up some of the countries that I don't think I would classify as authoritarian that have uh, either term limits or mandatory retirement ages. So Germany's top judges serve 12-year terms with no re-election allowed, and they have to retire at 68. Um, Swiss, Swiss judges also have to retire at 68. Countries including Canada, Australia, and Britain have retirement ages, usually 70, 75. So, you know, America is pretty exceptional in this regard. Um, also, just to reiterate that the way in which American decisions are, are written is also quite unusual. Um, and some would argue this is a good thing, but, but others say that this is a bit more problematic. There are a lot of European courts that are more consensus-driven. So in Germany and Spain, justices rarely write dissenting opinions. Um, that, you know, to me, I don't really mind a dissenting opinion, but the idea that there is more consensus that different judges try to seek is interesting and in, in stark contrast to the highly divisive um, nature of American courts. But I will say that one thing that came up in the arguments in Dobbs that I thought was worth noting is that it's not really in America the Supreme Court's um, job always to try to find consensus. That's what some of the liberal justices said explicitly, that there are decisions that the Supreme Court hands down upon which regular Americans may disagree. And that just because there's disagreement among the American public doesn't mean that those decisions shouldn't still stand. That doesn't mean that the court needs to be hugely aggressive. But the idea that 100% of Americans are going to agree with every decision um, is something that's not a, a worthy goal. So I thought that was kind of interesting in the context of um, certainly this case and also the broader questions about confidence in the court, which has declined, by the way, on both sides. It's not just uh, the left that is now worried about the court. The public opinion polling on the court is problematic um, for both for both parties. So approval of the court dropped from um, 49% to 
to 36 percent in the year to September among Democrats, but also among Republicans, 57 percent to 45 percent, according to a Gallup poll. That's pretty remarkable. So what does that mean for the court's legitimacy? I mean, we have an executive branch that can change radically every four years. We have Congress that is dysfunctional and doesn't like to legislate. The Supreme Court has become effectively the policymaker of last resort. What does it mean if if both sides start calling its legitimacy into question? I think if you asked me that question before the Trump era, I wouldn't have been as concerned. But I think one of the things that was interesting as a reporter during the Trump years was to see how um, fragile these institutions that I kind of took for granted actually were. The idea that you could really um, question the legitimacy of basic uh, functioning of government. And certainly the January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol was the most dramatic representation of that. But you saw that throughout the Trump presidency. So I think that this decline of trust in institutions is really problematic as is the reality that both sides have different answers to how to restore trust in institutions, right? And you saw that in the in the court case. One of the things that I'm curious about in the run-up to the midterms is how the messaging, frankly, will change among both parties. Because I think that the communications by the Biden administration, the hope that Biden would be a unifying force has really gone unrealized. And I'm really curious whether we can um, get some kind of semblance uh, um, of of more communications, more PR, frankly, that is not just about pointing out how horrible the other party is, but offering some kind of vision of a cohesive country um, that I think is really, really we're in dire need of. I think some people hoped that Biden might be that figure, but so far he's fallen short. I, I co-sign everything that Charlotte said about the fragility of the institutions that make up our democracy. And I would add electoral democracy and the very principle that the people make decisions through their representatives is something which is not quite all it's cracked up to be. This is a conservative trope that we hear a lot. It was voiced by Justice Kavanaugh during the Dobbs hearing. He says, you know, the Constitution is not pro-life, it's not pro-choice. We have to let the people decide. Democracy is what solves this this problem, not, not unelected justices. But the problem is there are many ways that we in The Economist have documented and many people have been talking about in recent years how people's preferences are not being accurately recorded when it comes to whom they want to send to Washington. There are also questions about voting rights, which the Supreme Court has been an active participant in dismantling. So there have been a couple of cases in the last decade, in 2013 and in 2020, in which the Supreme Court has very much weakened protections for voting rights um, so that people trying to actually change America through the voting booth is something that is less effective today. And it's the Supreme Court, unfortunately, that's partly to blame for that. So it's dispiriting to hear justices talk about how we need to turn things back to the democratic process when it's the democratic process that their own decisions have been compromising. I guess that's two of three discussions this week that have ended on on a bleak note. I don't want to send you away unhappy, though. So before you go, I have a quiz for you both. I'm going to make a pitch before you begin the quiz, which is that we are asking listeners to uh, email podcasts 
at economist.com. I feel like I need an English accent to make that come across more clearly. Podcasts with an S at the end at economist.com. Um, email us with politics trivia questions that you think will test John Fasman to his limits. Um, I don't think he has any limits, but I leave it to you to try to come up with something that may um, stretch the outer boundaries of his knowledge. And uh, so that's a request. Again, podcasts at economist.com with some politics trivia questions for John. I was going to say, I'm very happy to be thought of as limitless, but I'll have you know that I can never find my shoes. So I'm quite frightened of what you're going to send in. Yes, this is for a special episode we're recording for Christmas. I'll have you note, I'm not asking you to send questions to test my limits, because I think those are very apparent to um, anyone who listens to the pod regularly. And mine are about to become apparent. All right, let's do it. The Economist first wrote about Neil Gorsuch in February 2017 in an article titled Gorsuch Test. We remarked on a 2014 speech in which he'd referenced Shakespeare. John Wilkes Booth quoted a line from Shakespeare after shooting Abraham Lincoln. Six Semper Tyrannus comes from which play one the actor assassin had starred in with his brothers. Ooh, I thought this was going to be an easy one because I think I wrote that article, but <laughs> it went in a different direction. <laughs> was it one of the Richard plays? Steve? I don't have a guess. I'm sorry. It was Julius you Caesar. You have to throw out something arbitrary, Steve. That's the name of the game. In that case, I'll throw out Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Julius Caesar would be too on the nose for a future assassin, but I guess all of Shakespeare's tragedies have... Someone who has um, thirst for blood, but well done, Steve. Let's pick up Lincoln. Joe Biden has a bust of Abraham Lincoln in the Oval Office, along with at least six others. Can you name them? Huh. Ah. Um, FDR, JFK. Lyndon Johnson? L yeah, that sounds right. Lyndon Johnson. Who are other heroes? George Washington, maybe? Probably nobody uh, living, right? Jilly, as he refers to her. Hmm. His dog. A bust of his dog. <laughs> Maybe Aristotle. Harry Styles. It can't be all presidents. All right. I'm going to put you out of misery. Both of you scored a resounding zero. Um, oh, boy. The six busts are Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy, Cesar Chavez, Rosa Parks, Eleanor Roosevelt, and President Truman. You know, Steve, we didn't think about electoral politics when we answered that question because he has a bust for almost each constituency. Ah, I would really. find it deeply unsettling to work in an office surrounded by human heads, but he seems to enjoy it. <laughs> I like my office fine. I think it works great with all the busts I have. Do you actually have busts? Oh, I don't have any busts. I'm making a joke. <laughs> yeah, that's the right number. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, Steve. And we can hear more from you on the Mississippi abortion case on another Economist podcast, right? Yes, I was on the intelligence uh, yesterday, so you can catch me there. Thanks so much for having me, letting me crash your party. Our pleasure. And as always, thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Tom Birchall. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. And do fill out our listener survey if you have the time. Go to economist.com slash US pod survey. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. And to steal a line from the host who will be back next week, stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.